1: Tonight's topic is about uh, falling action, and um, one of the things that we talk about a lot on Bitchcraft is uh, uh, crafting your story and creating um, a rhythm in your story with your beginning, your middle, and your end, and in the past, we've talked about falling action, and I have a few problems with falling action. Sometimes my following action is too abrupt, sometimes I take too long, and it and it builds up again in a way that um, builds anticipation in the reader, and then they're, you know, kind of cut off at the past with the ending, and that's not what I intended, but sometimes that happens. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> Julie's going to join me tonight, because uh, this is a conversation that we had started in the past about um, following in action and how that works, and we're going to talk through it, and... Um, uh, What I would say is that you have to find your own – I kind of – a lot of times, a lot of craft issues uh, get confused with um, voice, um, writer voice, and um, I'm – Kind of famous for saying that you know bad craft doesn't equal writer's voice, so you can't claim that you don't use commas because it's a violation of your writer's voice, or you don't want to be edited because they're gonna they're gonna you know abuse your voice as a writer. But I do believe that um, falling action and how you approach the structure of your story um, is. Instrumental to your voice as a writer, so it's not something that is um, clear cut or something that you can say you you can only do it one way. You have to find your own method for falling action and what works for you. And we'll go over some of the um, more common methods of falling action that we've seen in fiction, and um, we'll. I'm gonna I'm gonna use some movies for example as well because that will give you um a very visual representation of falling action. So uh, I'm gonna get Jilly on the phone and we're gonna get started. Hello. Hi there. How you doing?
2: I'm doing fine. Still itchy? Oh, you like you would not believe. <laughs> oh, God. Just I'd, have already, one.
1: I'd have already ripped it off. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't do it.
2: It's like oh and I've got thirteen more days to go.
1: <laughs> I don't know. You come you take you why don't you, you just tear your whole arm off? I mean just just fuck it. <laughs> it's
2: like oh and the for those of you who don't follow me on Facebook I'm wearing this little like little monitor thing that's like stuck on. Um and I'm allergic to the adhesive that's used to stick it on and like because of some weird insurance rules, if I take it off yeah, I'm considered a non-compliant patient, and my insurance won't cover it. So I have to – I can't take it off, literally, without someone saying take it off. So I called the doctor's office to discuss this, and they said, well, really, you have to get permission from the company that makes the device. And, um, But, you know, we think the benefit um, outweighs the inconvenience, so we think you should leave it on, unless there's a mm-hmm. medical emergency. And I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah, whatever, fine. So, bleh. Yeah, it itches like a motherfucker. So. And the thing is, I don't know how I'm going to keep my hands off of it when I'm asleep, because uh, I've been I've been known to scratch myself bloody while I was sleeping. So it's going to be... Yeah, she's
1: going to end up having to put mittens on my... <laughs> like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Where are put the oven socks mitts? I need them. Put some socks on your hands before you go to sleep. <laughs> put some socks on your hands, it'll be Okay. <laughs> my mom to me when I had chicken pox when I was little um she put socks on my on my hands um but I wasn't even the problem and because
2: uh
1: I, I, I was um my sister's two years younger than me um the closest sister uh and then I have another sister who is um uh five years younger than me um but um she <laughs> <laughs> the one closest to my age at the time um, got chicken pox and my mom didn't notice because they weren't uh, in places that um... she didn't notice that night so she puts my sister to bed and she puts me to bed and she puts socks on my hands so I can't scratch myself Wake up the next morning and my sister is a bloody mess because she has scratched herself and she's got chicken pox all over her chest and all over her legs under her pajamas, and Mom just didn't notice because we had taken a bath early in the afternoon, and we got dressed for bed, and my sister's chicken pox came up overnight. Poor thing. It was terrible.
0: Yeah, my That's sister awful. has scars
1: to day for it. It's terrible. But um, I understand the itching. Now, I know doctors, what... A, um, and it just means due to you, but is it worth the... I mean... <laughs>
0: <laughs> Would one Well, that's, really
2: that's, hurt? that was a trade-off. Because if I <laughs> if I'm not, because antihistamines, I can't sleep on antihistamines. So, um, if I'm not sleeping from itching, I might as well not itch and not sleep. Right, <laughs> so, right. Um,
1: yeah, you know, well, okay, I'll, okay. I'll just take, fuck it. I'll just be anyway.
2: I might as well not itch. Um, but um, yeah, the doctor's office said, well, why don't you, you know cut your because I, I was just in there so she saw my nails she said well and they're unusually long right now and she said why don't you cut just cut your nails and i said well that will prevent skin damage but this device is not that big and you know nothing sh- probably even an oven mitt isn't going to prevent me from ripping this thing off in my sleep, in your if sleep it's really bothering me yeah so um you know so i mean and the thing is you know i'm it, it, it's a it's a heart monitor. So when I fiddle around near it, like itch and stuff, it creates artifacts um, right in the rec- in the recording. So I actually just have to like completely leave it alone. So I can't you know. So the more I fiddle with it, um, because you know sometimes when I'm, scr- I'm itchy and I have an area that I um, um, don't want to scratch, I'll like you know, slap it or something or um, dig my <laughs> nail into it for something. i am sure slapping really actually is very effective for at least temporarily stopping in it. But can not you know, can't slap this. they will be like, oh, you had a heart attack. No, I didn't. I slapped myself. <laughs> actually, I slapped your stupid device that you won't let me take off.
1: <laughs> um, maybe you could cover it up with a nice bandage. It's a really awkward place for an ace bandage <laughs> right above the left boob. I don't um, buy a big giant band aid. <laughs> that would just add to your adhesive nightmare. So probably not.
2: It's just it's just one of those things. It's just like this is just. <sighs>
1: You're so. gonna have to get some socks and have your sister um, duct tape those socks
2: on before you go to bed. <laughs> It's going to get strange in my bedroom coming up here pretty soon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like that the first what? time it got strange in your bedroom. It's just a oh, new kind no. of strange.
2: <laughs> yeah, very different. And you know, One of the funniest things about this thing was is that they give you a little form um, so that you can fly with it because they've had more than one instance where TSA thought it was a bomb, which I don't understand at all, but whatever. <laughs> so. I have a little form that says I am not wearing a bomb strapped to my chest, which I think is hysterical.
1: But you know what, though? How how the thing is is if you were, I mean, and how easy
2: would it be to fake that letter? <laughs> well, <laughs> like, it also yes. comes with it also comes with the numbers of phone number so that you can um um call and they can call and verify and all that kind of silliness but you know I I don't I don't understand how they get bomb out of you know but you know I guess better than safe than sorry. Maybe. But yeah, so it's just gonna be it's gonna be, you know, two weeks of uh trying not to mangle my upper chest. Um but you know. Well fortunately, so I'll probably,
1: I'll probably be nails really speaking of be distracted. Uh,
2: yeah, and really grouchy. Um, so that's like bad juju, you know. It's like I need to write. On, and I'm she's really pissed Rock,
1: off. <laughs> character death warning on her fic. Rocks fall, everybody dies.
2: Well, I get to start the fic with like a thousand people dying, so you know that could be therapeutic.
1: Yeah, but at least you aren't killing everybody. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you are. That's true. You are. You are killing everyone. <sighs> Nobody
1: knows that alive. At least not in their original form.
2: But yeah. um,
1: yeah, my husband was reading through my um, my notes and he goes, you know, sometimes you're so pessimistic.
0: <laughs> no, oh, you're realist. It's
1: eighty degrees and it's November first. <laughs> he goes, okay, point. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. Action November first, but I mean we're we're coming up the first of November in my area and it's eighty fucking degrees outside. That's ridiculous. When I was little, we had to wear um, thermal underwear under our Halloween costumes.
2: That's just—it's just great. It's—it's it's really warm here too. It's like we had to turn the air conditioner on yesterday. Because one of the things they told me, they said, "Do not get sweaty wearing this thing." I was like, what, "Is it gonna—is it gonna hurt me?" And they're like, "No, but it might fall off." Hmm, maybe I should get sweaty. But anyway, so we had to run the air conditioner is yesterday it's like I'd
1: have been like, oh, "I don't like to sweat anyway," but okay.
2: It's not on my to-do like, list. Why would I want to get sweaty? But, uh, yeah, it was um, – but, you know, the funny thing is, so I'll just give you, like, I've worn I've, – this is, like, the, you know, the evolution of these kinds of monitors is this thing. And um, the last time I did one of these, it was only for 48 hours, but I had a severe allergic reaction to both the conductive gel in the middle of the pad and the adhesive that holds the pad on. Only it only worked for two days. And it left a ring of um, hive-type welts from the adhesive, but these severe blisters from um, the gel in the middle, like they pulled the thing off and like all the skin pulled away. It was just horrible. I, oh. I told them it was, And I wore this for two days. So I told them, I said, this is really painful for some reason. She goes, oh, some people just have a little reaction to heat. And when she pulled it off, she goes, oh, I'm going to go get the doctor. <laughs> and why head is like, there's there's multiple connections, but two of them was like one pad above each boob, right? Like right below your collarbones, And... So for weeks, and actually you could see the marks for months. You could see the, little, the blister marks didn't fade for two, two-and-a-half months. But I've got multiple scars on my chest from surgeries. And the way it hit my shirt, that my shirts tend to hit where those pads were, you had this bright red outer ring from the adhesive reaction. You had the inner blisters that were small and round. Um, coupled with the other scars... It looks like a horrible parody of a smiley face on my chest for two
0: months. <laughs> Sorry. I know. It's just,
2: I look in the mirror and I go, and the thing is I don't like things up close to my neck, so I don't have any shirts really that aren't like turtlenecks that you know for like a serious winter, like sweaters that cover that shit up. So everywhere I went, people would like do this double take and stare at my chest. I'm like, yeah, I know. It looks like a face. Just let's move on. <laughs> Because I've got vertical and horizontal scars on my chest, so it's just it's just there's like a nose and a mouth. There's just the whole deal. It was, like, oh. <sighs> it was just so ridiculous. And so when I got this one, I said, "Is this gonna be? Um, is this gonna have my?" She says, "No, this is a much better adhesive. You're not gonna have any problems with it next morning." It's just like a son of a bitch. I need to take it off. She said, "No, don't take it off. You'll have to pay for it." And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I the 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 I call that the smiley face months, you know. That's the smiley face summer when I wore a smiley face on my chest. What is that? It's just an allergic reaction. You know, no big. That's no problem.
1: It'll be fine. Are you breathing? Speaking of breathing, I got um I um have been carrying an for um most of my adult life and there have been a variety, um there have been a, sm- a few small changes with the official EpiPen and how it works. Um, well, with the big change in the EpiPen cost, I um, asked my pharmacist specifically to give me the generic. Um, and I got it, and it was like, what do I do with this? It doesn't look anything... I mean, it, it's, a, it, it's, it's an auto-injector, but it's a different auto-injector. It's going to take the whole damn thing apart, try to figure out how it works. But the really cool thing was this is you're gonna think this is crazy, but um every time I get a new EpiPen, I have this thing about putting my old EpiPen in the trash with the medicine still in it. So I always get a box and take my EpiPen out and I stab a box. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is so
1: satisfying. You don't understand how satisfying it is to stick an EpiPen in a
2: box. <laughs> I've just, never um I've never done that. I've I always just send mine off for Sharp to Sharp's disposal and um um, uh, I would just, I've always wondered how much force, because I've never actually had to use the auto-injector. I've mm-hmm. always wondered how, just how much force is it because they tell you the trainer takes much less force that you practice with, takes much less force than the actual injector. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how much force is taken? And now when my pen expires, I am totally going to do that. Well, I know, right? It's it, it's really satisfying. I always do it, even though I just take the pen to my
1: doctor's office to, for, for disposal, you know, and in and their little in their little box thing, um, I guess sharp disposal. But I still I can't um, I can't leave the medicine in the pen. It just I just can't do it. It's like this OCD thing for me. I can't do it. And um, my husband carries one too, so we had two pens. It was fun.
2: I think that would be awesome. It would be awesome. I got in trouble with, well, not in trouble, but I got held up at TSA for like, I don't know, half an hour one day? when Because normally I've never had them pause at the EpiFence. But this dude, he said, we need to look at the the needles in your bag. And I said, what needles? And I just was, just, I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He said, you have a, a long needle or a long something that kind of looks like a needle in your bag? And I said, no, I don't. He said, "Yes, ma'am, you do." And I said, "No, I don't." And I was so adamant that I didn't have a needle. And we had, and the EpiPen was sitting right there. He pulled everything out of my bag, and it was sitting there in the box. And he's like, he couldn't find it. So they're getting ready to rip my bag apart when somebody came by and po- pointed at the EpiPen and goes, "It's that." We don't usually even search for those. We know exactly what they look like on this monitor. But I just stood there. I'm like, "Oh, I don't have a needle. I don't have a needle."
1: Because it doesn't <laughs> look like a needle, right?
2: No, not not in that form, not in the auto injector form. I'm like there's no needles here, and we all we both sit there looking at the box, and uh, and then when the other person came by and pointed to the box, I went, "Oh my god, I feel so stupid."
1: But my new one is um my my epipen, the official epipen is oval, ish. No, my new one is round. And you have to that pull off two ends. Both like, ends. Like the other one, you just both ends. Yeah, you, you have to pull off both ends. Um, with the epipen, you, you 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 pull off the blue cap and then you you stab. Well, with my with my generic one, you have to take it out of the case. You take it out of the case, and there are two spots you have to pull off. I'm thinking this is just too much activity for me to. End- I'm I, I could be in trouble.
2: Because
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, we'll test- you can't
0: breathe.
1: I know, right? So um anyways this is totally off topic for 19 minutes. Sorry. Uh but uh it's just a thing. Um so uh falling action. Falling action. <laughs> falling action. I think that one of the things that um people sometimes uh get a little confused on is what falling action is. And maybe it's because of the term action.
0: Uh, and it's not... Yeah. Um,
1: falling action
2: doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with, like, an action scene. If everything right. in your story, if everything in your narrative is a form of action, they're doing something in theory. Unless it's just all exposition, which is not what you're...
1: Which is a nightmare. Um, Versus an epilogue. An epilogue is an entirely different matter. Jeep, An epilogue is a PS for your story. um, And nothing included in your epilogue should be necessary to complete your story. If you're putting something in an epilogue that is required for your story to end, then it's not an epilogue, it's a chapter. An epilogue is a, is a P.S. P.S., I love you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> not necessary. And honestly, you need, you need to construct your story where a reader could skip both your prologue and your epilogue and still get a story. Yeah, J.K. was P.S., I hate you, but that's, that's a whole different matter. But you're absolutely right. The epilogue for the, the Deathly Hallows was completely unnecessary to the story. It served absolutely no purpose for the story itself. And that's, and that's what an epilogue is, and it's not anything to do with falling action. But when it comes to falling action... um One thing that people make the mistake of doing is uh, when you're moving out of your climax and everything um, has been resolved and everything has happened just the way you want it to, you need to slow down, move your reader into a very peaceful place, and end it either, it depends on your tone, either end it in a very peaceful, satisfying way or end it in a way that is not because not every story has a happy ending so the end of a falling action isn't necessarily a happy ending to keep that in mind Um, but uh, but the falling action isn't a reference to an action scene or it's just the taking your reader down off the mountain if you think of your beginning your middle and the end as a mountain um, your beginning is the bottom of the mountain on one side. Your middle is the top um, of the mountain. Your climax comes shortly in between the middle and the end. And then your end, from your climax to your end, is the falling action. Now for me, the middle of a story is the foundation. Uh, the beginning is, is is how I bring my reader in. The middle is... Um, where I build my story, then I have my climax, and then the falling action and the end. But that's just the way I build. And like I said, when I first started the show, the the way you build your story is a matter of author voice, and you need to find the rhythm that works for you. But falling action is important because it brings your reader down, how you approach that um, that following action is entirely up to you, but it brings your reader down and it gives you closure for your story.
2: Thoughts, Julie? Um, so, I um, they, the the, <laughs> defi- the technical definition of following action is what happens after the climax of your story. Um, and there's, a, there's something funny that happens here with that. Um, and I, I would agree, it's what happens after the climax to your story. But the climax, it's not uncommon to see stylistically that some authors will bring the climax to their story right before the end. And so you've got a slow, very slow climb to climax, and then it is a steep drop um, to the end of the story. It's like scaling the cliff and then falling off. Like, literally, that's, that's, that would be, if you were to chart their progress in the story, it's like the falling off. But um, the interesting thing, I think, is that sometimes I think people, no one can define for an author what the climax of their story is. And I think that um, that's also something that you, as, as, a, as, somebody, as a writer, you have to figure out is what is the climax of your story. What is the pinnacle of it? What, what are you trying to um, achieve? Because it's interesting that readers sometimes will try to define what the climax of your story is for you. Um, and if they define that the climax of your story in their minds is the last scene, <laughs> then... You're going to get a lot of. Um, uh, you can give, kind of get hammered for leaving people on a cliffhanger of sort for not having falling action or whatever, um, and I've I've gotten this on a couple of stories. Because it's think
1: abrupt, that. because you have this big build and then, right. You, your reader's hitting the ground, and uh, one thing I think this happens with writers who are pantsers who um, who recognize their climax but instead of allowing that falling action to take place and their story to end in a very natural place they build back up and we get another climax and they build back up and we get another climax and that's like someone mentioned um in the uh, chat room the lord of the rings um the Lord of the Rings, when you get to the end, you're thinking, is this ever going to fucking end? Oh, the oh. rings destroyed. Oh, wait, of the shower. Oh, wait. Come on! <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> we need to have some fucking closure. There were like eight climaxes and end of that.
2: Well, they start rising again. It's like you. It's not. It's not. It's not the rise to the ring being destroyed. It's not that rise again. It's not that high. So it never kind of comes back. You never want to go back higher than your climax. It's part of, it. I would say, definitely don't ever go back higher than your climax. Otherwise, I, I, that's just weird. Um, it would be that would be odd story structure to me. Um, is to 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 bring the action back up higher than the climax of your story. But. Um, Sometimes things do kind of rise and dip a little bit in the falling action, but in Lord of the Rings, it was ridiculous. It was like, oh, new, we're moving into a whole new story arc. Nope, there it comes down. Oh, new oh, and it's oh, just wait, like, Here we go again. Here we go again. Can we just end this, please? <laughs> just end
1: it. Just let it die. Um, I, um, Here's the thing, uh, Jeep, because she says – No multiple climaxes in a fiction. The fact of the matter is is you can only have one. You should have one climax. Now, you can have events that are traumatic and jarring moving into your climax, but there has to be a pinnacle. There can't be ten pinnacles. There can only be one. I got my hand in the air. I, I got my hand in the fucking air. I want you to know that. So you can build and you can have all these events building up to your pinnacle, but you only get one. Otherwise, the structure of your story is um, is skewed. It, it's 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 imbalanced. Um, and lady holders tell me I was picking on um, panthers, uh, but the thing is, is, I've seen plotters do this too. I've seen plotters um, actually build multiple climaxes into their story and then act confused when their rhythm fell apart, when their pace was literally destroyed. And I'm like, well, that's because you've got six fucking climaxes here and you can only have one. You, You can build, 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 but you only get one
2: pinnacle. There's only one top of a mountain. There's only one yeah, you're not tackling the mountain range. You're tackling a mountain, one.
1: One mountain, and you get one pinnacle. Um, and when you have more than one, when you're moving your reader up and down, up and down, up and down, what you're doing is is you're destroying your pace. And when you destroy your pace, your work gets really, really loose. One of the most often said things about... Um, the first book in the Lantian Legacy that I wrote, No Enemy Within, is oh my god, the story is so tight. Over and over again, people said that this, this, and it was bigger than it actually was. People talk talk about how how much story there packed there was packed into the word count, and that's the point. When you build a tight story, and your climax is in just the right place, and you and you've got your um, Everything just the way it's supposed to be, your story is going to be tight and um, very entertaining, and your pace will leave your reader both breathless and satisfied at the end and that is always your goal as a writer. Oh, look, I built a soapbox and didn't even know it <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah i don't I will um and, but in terms of uh, let me see how I put this well, I'll pick on my own work here um, so the first I, I was just getting back into writing fan fiction actually creative writing in general um when I first started participating in trade, rev trade and right emergence and um i I started writing the action again at the end of the story um, and I knew I had done it um it wasn't it wasn't like I was unaware but I went ahead and um, put the story out with the action rising again and didn't leave off with falling action. And so to some, you know, I actually don't want to hear bitching about it, but I do get a lot of bitching about that. Uh, People don't use those words because they don't understand why the end feels off. Um, But honestly, it was a decision I made based upon just simple writing fatigue um, that I wanted it off my plate, and I didn't want to recraft where the end was. So I, um, you know, I made a bad craft decision in terms of how that story ended. But if any of you, those of you who have read my work, want an example of action rising again at the end of a story and and it being a bad idea, there you go. I'll pick on myself. (laughs) um,
1: I'm trying to think. Um, My biggest craft mistake in... um, In fan fiction, uh, one of the reasons why I chose to write uh, episodes for um, both Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond and um, Sentinels of Atlantis is that I had a pacing issue um, in my plot that I was having a hard time... um, I was having a hard time um resolving and I realized that because of the scope of the project I needed more room than I did um in a traditional story so I wasn't telling uh this 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 wasn't a novel um and so when I moved into, like, I was like, okay, maybe it's novellas, but that didn't work either, and I was like, okay, well, what's wrong with this? And then I realized that I was actually building, uh, that I was in my brain, this is what happened with Sentinels of Atlantis specifically, which is why it was really easy for me to break Harry Potter and the Bomb up in the episodes later, is that when I was constructing Sentinels of Atlantis, I realized after I wrote The Gathering um, that I had basically uh, written a I'd plotted a TV show. I was like, well, that's, that's interesting. (laughs) What am I supposed to do with that? It's because I had structured my plot around the first season of Sentinels of Atlantis. And that wasn't something I normally did, because canon means nothing to me. Um, But when I started going through the episodes of Sentinels of Atlantis, and trying to kind of, you know, merge and match them up with, with some of the canon events, I inadvertently plotted a TV series and didn't realize it. But I'd written it, I'd had it Written as one big giant book, and I was like, that's just not going to work. <laughs> that's just not how that's <laughs> gonna happen and so but it's just something that I had to that I had to to recognize and and learn um and I also had to uh, figure out um the middle of my season the the climax of my season. And then I had to have all these episodes where the action was falling for the season, but then they also in each season had their own arc. And um it was uh, <laughs> it was not the easiest thing I've ever had to do. I'll I'll tell you that. Uh constructing that the way I did um and picking out my um my climax for the whole season um, over 30 episodes and I'm on it, is it 30? And I don't even know how many words at this point. i would have to go look. Uh, it Sentinels of Atlanta is 259,000 words. And it is 20 episodes and then I have a couple of um, shorts, but separating that whole season out into a beginning, a middle, and an end for the overall arc, and then giving each episode its own beginning, a middle, and end, and then realizing where my falling action was for the whole season, it's a little complicated.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no doubt.
1: (laughs) But honestly, yeah, if when I, when you're riding a season like that, I um, I really um, don't know how I could have pantsed that. Have no, I pantsed I before? Yes, I have. There is a story on my site that I totally pantsed. Um, it has happened. It usually happens when I'm broken and I'm stuck in one place. And um, that would be birth of the serpent king. I did pants versus the serpent king, um, and it's not that I'm embarrassed to have pantsed it. It's just it's really uh, unusual and different from my process, and um, in a lot of ways I feel kind of divorced from that from that story um, because I, because there is no world building um, and there were no notes and there were no uh, timelines. I didn't I, I just I just wrote, and while while it it, it is my writing, it, it doesn't feel
2: like my craft.
1: Does that make any sense whatsoever? Yeah,
2: totally. I have that. I have that problem with, um, well, with emergence actually, because it. Um, I I've talked before about how it was a pantsed exercise at first. Um, probably the first quarter of the story was completely pantsed, and then I went, okay, I've got to sit down and took a pause, and I've got to plot the rest of this out. And so then I plotted the rest, and. Um, My idea when the plot, because if I had had plotted it from the beginning and not paused in the middle of NaNo to plot, um, I would have plotted out where the story ended very differently. Um, But I plotted out the end knowing that it was going to be another book, that there had to be because I was going to bring in another fandom or two, and I didn't want to do that um, right before the end of the book, it needed to be the beginning of the next book, let a roll in the next fandom, and I just made a, I made what I would consider a tactical error in how I, um, how I, how I structured the end of that story, um, in terms of letting the action rise again, and, uh, it just yeah it it was it was it was it felt it feels it feels a little bit weird it's one of the reasons why it's a little bit hard for me to pick up um and keep working on sometimes is because I would uh redo the end of that if I could well, nothing says I can't, but you know it's just um, it's very difficult to when i when i'm when I'm in the mood to write um it's difficult to get in the mood to go in and pull something apart that's already. Done if you know what I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
2: so I, I, I um, do know what you mean, even though I would go you know if i if I hadn't finished it and put it up i I would probably be re, re reworking that from a craft perspective i know I mean it's by far the most popular story I've written, so I know my readers like it, although I do get um a lot of um feedback and prods about the way the story ended, and they are responding to a legitimate craft problem so i under- i mean I understand that. Um, but, you know, I still don't want to hear about it.
0: <laughs> I know, right?
2: Um,
1: like, I think one of the reasons why my ending with, um, A Birth of the Serpent King puts people off is because I, um, it was entirely pantsed, um, and I reached what I felt was a very natural ending for, for the story, um... In my pantsing brain, and um, which I don't normally engage, obviously. And uh, if I had plotted Birth of the Serpent King, it would be an entirely different story. And so when I finished it, I was faced with, okay, this is what I pantsed, um, but this isn't something that I would have written this way normally. Um, so what do I do with it? Well, what did I do with it? I sent it to Lady Holder, and she read it, and she bade it, and I put it on the website. That's what I did. I put it up. And so, um, and honestly, I think I put it up mostly because my foot hurt a lot, and I wanted praise. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> I'm not kidding. I mean, I, my foot hurt so much because I had broken this tiny bone in my foot and it, I was so miserable and I was stuck in the house and people, you know, um, I could barely walk and, uh, it was just, it was agonizing being, um, being stuck. And so I, cause I don't like to be stuck someplace. I like to be able to go when I want to go. And when I was, I, 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 I broke my right foot so I couldn't drive. Um, and it was just so yeah. That's what that's what *Birth of the Serpent King* was, and um, it's it's really funny because it is for a lot of people um, the first story they ever read from me. Um, and, I'm, and whenever somebody says to me that that was their first story they read, I'm like, "Oh, really? <laughs> is that the one you had to read?"
2: <laughs> it wasn't the you read first one. Of the one
1: other I- ones?
2: It wasn't the first one I read of yours. I think the first story I read of yours was The Awakening. Um, I think. But um it was the first Harry Potter story I read of yours. You had other stories up. But when I when I found your site you had I think the only Harry Potter you had up when I found your site was um the first book of the War Manages trilogy and Breath of the Serpent King. I don't think you had any of the anything else up yet. Probably
1: not. But
2: you may have started some your soulmate bond, I'm not a hundred percent sure. But um I hate hated at that point in time it one of my most despised tropes was time travel and um so when i found your harry potter stuff you know i'm reading the summaries and i was like i ain't reading that worm ages thing what the fuck because (laughs) time travel right i was like no i ain't reading that garbage which of course i didn't know it was best in my head i was like because that's the way there's like two there was like two tropes that i just i mean you could not pay me which was amnesia and um time travel and, I hate him um, too. I'm, I'm not I'm, I can't. Uh, so uh-uh. I, I'm reading, I'm reading Birth of the Serpent King and I wasn't certain about it because um, the original community I was involved with when I first got back into fandom in back like in 2009, um, there were a lot of um, Harry Potter shippers, but they, they didn't read pairings that worked for me. Um, so they, um, kept sending me stories and recommendations and i read all this stuff and i was like oh my god what is this um and there's a lot of underage um and yeah i mean i don't i wouldn't have read any you know i wouldn't even have picked it up if if he was under 16 but i mean somebody, the 16 the, the 20 year age differences don't work with me for me with a 30 with a 16 year old person so oh, i was no, like no, you know I, I, can't this, I, I can't read this i can't read this i can't read this um you know, and, and some of my friends, I think at that time felt really, you know, very judged because I wouldn't read this stuff, and I was like, um, you know, it's not this, not about you. This is just truly that this is just not my deal. This is oh, not it's my about dance.
1: you. I'm judging. I'm, I'm totally <laughs> judging you. Yeah, you know, <laughs> probably now, person to me, I'm
2: judging. <laughs> now, like you know, eight years later, or seven years later, I'd probably be a little bit more like, what the hell? But um, now, you know, back then I was, you know. I was getting back into fandom, and I was, um, um, you know, I was, I was I was playing nice. But anyway, so, um, and a couple of these people I'm still in touch with, and they still occasionally send me stuff, and I'm like just, I, I've gotten a lot more hard-nosed about, please don't send me this stuff. But somebody said, well, you need to try reading Harry Draco then, if, if like, this is, if this is, like, if you, you know, you're not going to, that's your, like, the last messages and slash pairings for you is, it's Harry Draco, so which just wasn't true. It's just I guess they were talking about the major ships, um, and I wasn't finding in all the all the recommendations to have all these issues, there's all these consent issues, and uh, I was like, I just can't read this stuff. What the hell? And so I, I read, read the Waking. I'm like, well, maybe I should try some of this lady's other stuff, and um, there was Birth of the Servant King, and I was like, hmm. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a go. I don't know. I'm just about just about you know the Harry Potter thing is just about done for me. You know, I don't know. And I read *Birth of the King, and I loved it. I loved it. I and the chemistry between them, and it was Harry written in a way he wasn't a victim, and um, Draco wasn't an annoying little shit. And I just it, it's my, it's like my Harry. You know, it, if pressed, I would say that I. Well, not even pressed. I've told you that my favorite now is the one that you've got in process um, from your plot drift. That's actually my favorite of yours. Oh, but uh,
1: um, I read it today. Actually, I was I was reading it today because I was um, trying to distract myself from Nano, and um, so I read it and I was uh, thinking about book two. So
2: yeah, that's probably my favorite. But um, I, you know, I would. Birth of the Serpent King is just. I don't know it's it's my Harry Potter unicorn, you know, it's it's I read it and for some reason every time I go go somewhere, like to travel on a plane, I always read it. It's my plane story, <laughs> you know.
0: It's your plane story, okay.
1: Good to know. I don't know, but I, I would say that probably my biggest um craft failure comes in Birth of the Serpent King because my ending is abrupt and um I'm not even sure there's actually a fucking climax. In that story, I mean, cause I'm not sure where. And that's a see, that's a serious problem with me when I pants. Is I don't always know where my where my climax is, and um, sometimes I'll end a story just based on word count. If I pants, okay, okay, it's 120 words. Thousand words, we're done. <laughs> the end. Are we there? Are we there? Which um, is why I should not pants.
2: No panting. <laughs> but you know, is it? If, that story for me was all about the characterization. It was, it was, it was, it was characters I could relate to that I wanted to read about, and it's like I need more of this. This, this is what I want more of. And I didn't mean specifically like Kira has to run out and write more, but it's like this is the type of story that I need to find if I'm going to read Harry Potter, and it's got to be this kind of thing, um, you know, this, this kind of character development, these kind of you know strong assertive characters, uh, you know. Harry dealing with this shit, um, you know that that was the vibe. I was like, this is what. And the thing is, I commented. I think that was the first one I commented on your site was on *Birth of the Serpent King*, and you responded and said, "Go read more Mage's
0: trilogy."
2: <laughs> you said, "Go read all that, all that, all that old Black Magic," and I was like, "But it's got time travel.
1: <laughs>
2: It'll be okay." And I, I still didn't do it. I still didn't read it, and um, then you started working on. I read. Then I went off and read a bunch of your Stargate stuff, and then you started working on book two of that old Black Magic, in, um, in Rough Trade. And I was like, I can't. Like, I'd see the post and I'd be curious, and I'd like, but I haven't read the first book. I'm like, oh, fine, I'll go read the first book. And I was like, oh my god, this is so good. Maybe I'll get over the whole time travel thing. And I did. Maybe. <laughs> well. I got, I got rehabilitated. Oh, rehab, rehab. But in terms of like, um, my second nano story was it's funny. I, this is weird because I get the same grief about, and this is one of the reasons why. Even though I understand my readers' complaint about the end of emergence and the and the rising action there, that kind of sets them up to want more. What's next? More is that the journey home. I plotted that very carefully. I knew it was a long, it was a long, slow climb to the climax of the story, Um, but it was not, um, it was not a steep drop. But obviously, the drop was faster than. I mean, you don't. It's not like it's equal. It's not like you write, you know. 60,000 words going to the climax and 10,000 words coming off of it. I mean, it's not there's not a formula like that, right? So it doesn't have to be like just some kind of balance. But um, I was I I knew exactly how that story was where it was going to end. I knew exactly you know, and I left a lot of you know I I laid a lot of groundwork in that story for the next book because I knew I was doing another book. I wanted to do the book about. The first book about them getting together and Tony finding a new place to be because the first book was mostly about Tony, it was mostly about his journey. And the climax of the story was them. Um, achieving their bond, and then the falling action was Tony finally separating from his former life. okay? That was the plot. That was the progression of the story. But I laid out teasers for the next book because the next book was then about their life together. It was about the two of them. It wasn't just so so intensely focused on Tony. It was gonna be just as much about Jack and about um uh, you know, very plot driven about stuff at the going on at the SGC. But because I laid all of those teasers out, that groundwork that I had done for the next book, I get the same bitching as I do about Emergence, um, about it being unfinished and leaving it on a cliffhanger, and, and da 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 da, and you know all these things I did wrong, and all the things I left people wondering about, and it's the, almost the same feedback. <laughs> um, and one suffers from a serious craft problem, and the other does not.
1: Well, and I think that goes
2: back to just um, greed. Well, it's that too, but you know, if, if, it had, if it was just on emergence, I would be a lot more tolerant of it because I, I guess in my head I'm like, well, you know, I have a craft problem there. I don't want to hear it, but I understand where the comments are coming from. But when they're mirrored into a story where I don't think I have any craft problems like that, there's no structural issues. Um, when I see the same comments mirrored over there, um, then Dollar I kind of go double bird. People aren't, people aren't bitching about my craft. They just no. More. I just want more.
1: One of the worst things I did to my readers in The Awakening is I hinted at a relationship between Blair and Jack Kelso and never told them what it was. And because I got so much grief from um, the Sentinel fandom about um, Blair's characterization in The Awakening, I have never um, posted um, what I've written of book two of of that particular uh, storyline. And... um, I kept getting questions about what's, you know, what's Jack to Blair? Who's Jack to Blair? What, 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 what? Over and over again. And finally, one time in the comments, I just told them flat out, Jack is Blair's uncle because Jack was a set of twins. Jack was a guide and his brother was a sentinel and his brother was Blair's father. I just said it outright in the comments. And I think I deleted it because, um... The person who asked me the question was really upset that I actually answered it. They didn't want the answer. They wanted another story.
0: hmm
2: That's right. And the thing is, is that falling, falling action is not about tying up all your loose ends. Falling action... No. You don't need to tie up all your loose ends, okay? Um, If you introduce, let's say you throw out a thing, like you're using it as um, something that one of your characters is dealing with, okay? Let's say that Uncle Bob wants to come out. He's 50 years old. Your character is dealing with this thing as an aside, right? For somehow this works into your plot. Uncle Bob coming out is not a part of the story, not a significant part of the plot. So you get to the climax of your story, your falling action, you never resolve Uncle Bob coming out. So what? That was not, you know, you don't have to wrap up everything you introduce in the story and the falling action. Now, inevitably, somebody will notice everything that you discussed that you didn't tie up, and they're going to wonder what happened. And they'll either ask or, like I got yesterday, give you a list <laughs> your loose ends <laughs> for 500 words. Here's your loose ends. Are
0: you I'm like, kidding me?
2: Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but you don't, you don't, the falling action is not about tying everything up with a neat little bow because your story will never end if you do that. Because if all you're doing is resolving plot points, A, that's boring. If you're just resolving stuff, it feels contrived. And what you will do to naturally do as a writer, a good writer will naturally introduce new plot to keep that monotony from happening in their craft. And what happens is you start, the action starts to rise again.
1: And you've destroyed your climax and you've destroyed your pace and your story is now 500K.
2: (laughs) Right. So, it, the reader doesn't need to know everything. How many times have you read a published novel and you don't know everything at the end? You know, infer shit. That's what you're supposed to do, is figure it out. You don't need to know that um, that they wound up with two point four children and lived in Maine. You don't need to know that. You know, so I got one of the um I just did a store put a story up this week, um, and I'm used I'm pretty much used to all types of feedback at this point but someone caught me unaware (laughs) a little bit unaware with um, letting me know that this was one of my favorites of theirs Um, and the reason why the many reasons why it's better than the other stuff I've written and so they kind of told me all the flaws and the other my other stories and um, why this was better and one of the reasons why this story was better—I'm paraphrasing them—is because I gave more glimpses into the future. Um, I gave uh, a better sense of what was going on with them, um, um, that they would had a happy life together. Um, that I tied it; I didn't leave a lot of dangling loose ends, you know. So it was just it was all this stuff. And then they mentioned the works that I had done this in the stories where I had done this. Well, part of the reason why there's an epilogue on this story is because that's it. There will be no more. I don't write epilogues on stories where I plan to write another book.
1: Jeep says in the chat rooms, that's what gets me. Do these assholes send these types of letters to paid writers? Absolutely. Yes, they do. In fact, Nora Roberts cussed out her fans on her own Facebook page because of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um... Not only have I gotten demands for a sequel, uh, I had a lady uh, who was reading a series that I I wrote for a a print publishing company, um, who not only demanded a sequel, she outlined the couples she would like to see in the sequel. She picked out um, the hero. She picked out which one of my secondary characters in one of the other books she wanted the the hero to be paired with. she went on and on and on about the things she'd like to see. And this damn this damn email had to be at least a thousand words long. And I responded with, well, that's really interesting, but that character is actually gay. <laughs> <laughs> so that pairing's not going to work for him. He's just not that into her. And she was horrified. She was horrified. But okay, whatever. So yeah, it, it happens. Um... Uh, and for another writer to come out and tell the entire planet that George R R Martin isn't their fic bitch should tell you everything you need to know about the writer, the reader entitlement that professional writers deal with cuz when George R R Martin's being ordered around by fans really yeah it's terrible and in terms of cuz that bastard will kill all their characters <laughs> They're all, yeah,
2: that's just that's just risky, really risky. Um,
1: <laughs> the next one comes it, out in one line, and everybody fucking died and kissed my ass. Love, <laughs> George.
2: <laughs> the dragons lived. <laughs> there were dragons. Um, when you're doing your falling action, and actually falling action is, I would say, if you're a plotter, and you know you're going to write a sequel or you know there's more story to tell, or you, you, you might treat your falling action and actually your whole story a little bit differently than you, than you would treat it if this is like it, if this is like the, the deal, if this is going to be done. Um, you don't have to – I'm not saying it's made that decision up front. I'm just saying that if you know you have more than one story to tell, then it, you can lay down groundwork for the things that are going to happen in the next story. You just don't want the action to come up again. Um, which is the mistake I made end, in one story.
1: And with readers, you don't have to actually lay groundwork for them to expect a sequel.
2: Well, that's true. I, you know, they'll, they'll expect a sequel no matter. they I mean, they'll expect a sequel no matter what you do. No know matter how to, well, you know, if you write an epilogue that ties up the majority of the loose ends and gives them a glimpse of the future, you know, which is what I did with Imperfect. They're still going to tell you that, that they want more. Which was the most common theme was that. Um, I'd love to see, you know, these guys in the future. I'm like, doing what? <laughs> and that's just that's just you know, them in the future is just case fic, right? That that's all that would be. So, um That's kinda of boring. Yeah, I I mean the writer this this is about the kind of writer that I am, is that I write um relationship stories. That's what I'm interested in. Um a character progressing on some path. It doesn't necessarily have to be romantic relationships, but it's about people connecting and how they interact with each other, and that's what I'm interested in. Um, I know that there are some people who write case thick is what they do. Um, that's, not, that's not my jam. It's not what I really enjoy. Um, so.
1: Um, One of the complaints I got for Ties That Bind was um, the lack of missions. John doesn't go on missions in Ties That Bind, Um, you know, SG missions. He doesn't leave the ground. Sometimes he does, but most of the time the the story centers around um, their relationship um, and, and how that's developing. And so you don't see John doing his job in Ties That Bind. Uh, whereas in Sentinels of Atlantis, they're 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 exploring, they're moving around, they're 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 going on missions, they're doing this, they're doing that. It's very more action oriented. And the person who read Ties That Bind, read Sentinels of Atlantis first, and they were hoping that Ties That Bind would be more more of the same, but with spanking, I guess. I I don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, well, see, the difference between them is that Sentinels of Atlantis is a um. A story of of action and exploration and characters coming together and and just it's it's all that. But Ties That Bind is a romance. And the person wrote back says, well, I don't read romance?" And I was like, "Well, then you need to stop reading Ties That Bind because that's what it is." Hello, are you fucking serious?
2: Yeah, I can almost hear this naughty tone in their voice. You know, not word, I don't read
1: romance. Yes, you no do. Man. I'm telling you right now, if you assholes read my shit, you you read romance. Get over it. Even my story that I'm coming up in November where nobody's real anymore is a fucking romance. <laughs> I promise. Speaking of um synthetic and, and nano, um, I had an email somebody who'd read through um uh all the synthetic world building and they said that now they felt like they didn't need to read my story um, because they read all my world building. And I said, well, you do realize that all that stuff I wrote in my world building probably won't even come up in the story. Those personal logs, Sam Carter has no role in synthetic as as a character you won't see her on screen during the nano uh daniel jackson is not part of the crew that gets woken up uh Weir weirs not there these are this was me building a world and creating my mental landscape so all that stuff you see in the um in my world building it was just me building my landscape and it has no bearing on the actual plot what you're going to see in synthetic when I write it. And I didn't think people misunderstood what it was until that email. And I'm like, I don't think you, I don't think we were on the
2: same page, sweetheart. <laughs> yeah. I just, But I, I guess you were like, it's funny because sometimes, sometimes it's interesting that something sets you off and I just would kind of like, you know, head tilt. And then there are things that really set me off and you kind of head tilt. Cause on that one I'd have been like, Hey, if you're happy just reading my world world building and you don't need the actual story, there's the fucking door.
1: You do you, boo.
2: Because I find that it really was offensive. just
1: weird. It was just so weird. I'm thinking that's not my story, asshole.
2: It's world building. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh, it's crazy.
1: Um, well, the, the thing is, is this person's going to go into synthetic and then wonder where all the stuff was she read in the world building? Well, why isn't it here? Why'd you write all that stuff? <laughs> I was thinking, you know what? That, that's not for you. That, that, that's not for readers. If, if if you don't know how to read that um, to be what it is, then you don't need to be reading it at all. Craziness. Just craziness. Just craziness. But no, I mean, I do that with a lot of my work. I, um, I write essays. I write character profiles of characters who, who won't make an appearance. Um, uh, one of the more interesting things I did for the Warm Ages is that I wrote um, two different character profiles for Neville. One where he was in the future and he was batshit. And then one in the past when he wasn't. Because, in essence, the character that you first meet in War Mages, in that old black magic, um, is a different character than the character you see entering the ministry with Harry minutes apart. They are two different characters. And so I had two character profiles for Neville, one in the future and one in the past. Which makes complete sense. Um, But I never would have shared that with a reader if there's just no telling what kind of response that would have gotten. Um, And I actually wrote a whole series of um, essays, or not essays, but like diary entries from Crazy Neville. (laughs) Leading up to him sacrificing Harry and Draco. Because I wanted to understand his um, his mindset going into that. Because he was... um, the uh the epitus of of that entire um the thrust of the whole story, and also I wanted to really connect with him so that when I wrote the scene where Harry is confronted with the knowledge that the fates let Neville go crazy as a uh as a lifeboat for Harry basically. Uh, that that was something they allowed to happen. Um, that I wanted Harry's anger to to feel really real to me when I was writing it. So um, in order to do that, I had to really know um, future Neville and just how crazy he was. So um, those are small things that I do in the background that I think come out in the emotional content of my work, even if they're not in the... Um, the actual content of my work. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. Well, it's important to know. I mean, it, you know, my first, my first writing, you know, my first started writing, I, I pantsed it. I mean, I don't, um, I don't know. I don't know anybody. You may have been like an early plotter, but I don't know anybody who sat down and planned out their first stories. They just sat down and wrote stuff, right? Um, at least people, most people I've talked to just when they were, you know, young, 10, 12, 13, whatever, just, like, wrote. So um, and up until my, I don't know, I would guess early 20s or so, most of my fiction was pants, and I was trying to learn to plot. Um, but when you're panting, and you hit a point where you don't know, you have to stop and do the work that a plotter does in front, of, in front. And... Um, at least I did, I can't speak for all dancers, but that's what I had to do, is I did effectively the work of a plotter, but I did it as I wrote. And one of the reasons why I wanted to learn to write, wanted to learn to plot, was because it was very disruptive to my writing rhythm to have to constantly stop and research or figure out character information or figure out some element of the world building. And it, it just ruined my, my creative rhythm Um,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. At least that was for me. And so I wanted to learn to move that work to the front end of the process so that when I got into the writing, I didn't have to do that as much. I mean, I still have to do that because every once in a while I go, okay, I didn't anticipate whatever, and then I have to go find it. But um, So, yeah, I mean, I know know that, that the more you know that, the more that it's in your head, you may not need it all, but when you, when you know it backwards and forwards, and you know your world backwards and forwards, and you know um, your characters backwards and forwards, um, your story has an internal consistency um, that's hard to achieve without knowing that stuff. Move all seen this. you read a story and a character changes some... some um, um, some some element of the character or the world or whatever changes abruptly. Um, that's you know, just because of the, the the author, and in some fashion, um, doesn't they're they're not as familiar with their world as as what Kira is doing, as what she's doing in her process.
1: Well, the thing is, is I started out like most young writers, um, um, trying to just just write. I had a story to tell in my head, and I wanted to get it out on paper. But I learned pretty quickly that I needed more structure um, because I wasn't finishing projects. I was starting but not finishing repeatedly. Um, and so um, I asked my mom to take me to the used bookstore, and I bought three books that I already owned. And they were, 50, they were 50 cents a piece. She's like, why are you buying these books? I said, I need to take them apart. I need to take these books apart, and I don't want to take them apart my, my Reader, my reading copies. I need to have books I can take apart. So I took the books apart and I separated them physically into um, into different sections. Like I separated them by chapter, and then I decided um, I had gotten a book on storytelling from one of my aunts, um, and it talked about the beginning, the middle, and the end, and the climax, and um, all those things that um, I wasn't aware of as a writer and I separated those books out, the three of them into the beginning, the middle and the end. And so, And just physically finding the climax in these books helped me so much. And so one of the reasons why my process when I was very young took place on note cards is because I took these books apart and then I wrote their plot down on index cards. And then I spread it out and it is a very visual experience to me it stands out in my brain even like 20 years 30 years later 30 years later oh my god um <laughs> and so um then I went back and I started plotting my own book and I plotted on index cards and I did that for uh over a decade um that way because I I taught myself I deconstructed somebody else's book and then I went through all these different processes that were in this book my aunt had given me, and eventually I found my own process, Um, which is why I always say that you need to find your own process because one person's process isn't going to work for you um, as well as your own will.
2: I completely agree. There are things, I mean, I've seen people storyboard like this is one reason why i actually don't use scrivener because it really is a story for to me is when i try to use it, a storyboarding tool um and the level of i've mentioned this before but the level of that level of planning um where where i know every the, the that where i know the progression of every scene and every person in every scene and what order they're coming in that that ruins the writing for me completely um i i it's once I plan to that degree, I can't. I'm, I lose interest in the story. Um, I can <laughs> I can world I can world build to a great degree, but I can't plan the actual story um, down to that level of detail and not feel like I've basically written it. It's just it's just a little too much um, plotting. So you know, but I really I admire the people who do that. Um, and I think that it's just not a process that works for me. My plotting process is a lot more streamlined than that. Um, so everybody, you know, that's why there's that, um, that article we've shared several times about different ways of plotting, and he lists like, I don't know, probably 20, 25, you know, off-the-cuff methods of doing different types of plot from the, the most basic to really elaborate, and there's something that can fit you I mean um, if you want to plot, there's a type of plotting that will work for you. You just have to figure out your rhythm, and some people are are tweeners. you know they they want a loose idea they you know they, they get their goal motivation and conflict down, they understand the beginning, the middle, and the end, and they don't want any more structure than that. They just want to then get in and pants um. They know what point A and point Z is, and they want to pants from A to Z, and that's their jam, and it works for them. So whatever works for you is what you have to do. But if you're struggling with ever reaching the end of your stories and you want to want to reach the end, then you kind of have to back up and look a little bit at some of these other ish craft issues. And falling action is one of the things that I see tripping novel, novice writers up more than almost anything else. Um, how, many, how many people have, have know, know a writer in, that they follow in, in, in some fandom or another that has 30 whips and every one of them Reaches climax and then they stop writing and they pick up another story. Everybody in the chat and just raise their hand. <laughs> they all do because we they're... all know this author <laughs> and we all have and we all are intrigued and we like and they never can finish a story and it's because and that particular syndrome right there where they reach the climax of the story and then they lose interest. And I don't I don't know if, actually I don't know if it's a loss of interest because it, it could be. It could be like a squirrel thing where they've lost interest now that they've reached the climax of the story and they want to move on, or it could be that they just don't know what to do now. You know, I don't, they don't know how to get to the end from the climax. Um, and you know, and if it's, it's all a matter of do you want it to be that way or not? If you're okay with that, and that's you, if that's you, if you're that writer who has. Thirty stories that are unfinished because you get to the climax and then you either lose interest. And I would question why are you losing interest? Is it because you only enjoy writing rising action, or is it because you're not sure what to do with the story now? If you if you're if you're good with that and you're fine with that, then keep doing it. <laughs> I mean, no one's you know so you're saying, there's no there's no story police. But if
1: but the, it think, would be nice if you warned your readers in advance. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, You could say that. You could say, hey, I don't like writing falling action, so pretty much nothing I write is ever going to get past the climax. I mean, That would be good to know. Um, but if you want to change that, um, I can't speak for Kira, but I know one of the reasons why I'm interested in the craft stuff and why I help people who come to me on Facebook or through, through my website is because um, these are people who don't want to just, keep their craft where it is they want their stories to get better they want to have some elements that they want to work on and so you know um, I would say you know, Kira, Kira may have a different perspective on this but the craft shows are not about telling you how you have to do it it's like if you're not if you want to do it if you want to learn more if you want to grow if you want to advance you know these are some things you might want to look at and if you don't that's okay. This is a hobby. For, you know, fan fiction is a hobby. And if you don't want to move out of the hobby, you just want to write to the climax of the story and then move on, get down with your bad self. Go on. Do it.
1: You do you. Um, I The most horrific thing I ever heard come out of somebody's mouth, literally in my presence, was I don't want to learn anything
2: new. Yeah, that's really hor- horrifying. I was like,
1: what? <laughs>
0: I, will, I It. Uh,
1: I had to leave. I got up and left. I'm like, okay. Um, um, <clears throat> it was really nice to meet you. And not really. And I'm gonna go now. <laughs> don't call me, ever. Yeah. I don't want to learn anything new. To this day, 25 years later, whenever I, uh, it's, really horrifying. Now there's my mother. It's another version of this and it's pretty funny. Um whenever she encounters something that she doesn't know how to do, um she has two responses she either she wants to do it or she'll look at you like you're crazy and I'm retired. <laughs> like I told her um that she would uh have a it would be easier for her online if she learned to type, if she learned keyboarding. And I offered to download her a program um, to help her learn to type. And she looked at me like I had suggested that she go dig a ditch. (laughs) I am retired.
2: (laughs) I don't want to do that craziness. What the hell?
1: (laughs) Which isn't quite the same thing as I never want to learn anything ever again. But, um... It's pretty funny. So now whenever she encounters something that she doesn't want to do, she'll go, I am retired. (laughs) And look at you like you're the devil for assuming she might ought to do something.
2: Whatever it may be. But when you're learning craft stuff, when you're learning this stuff, A, I would say don't try to tackle it all at once. (laughs) Um, if If you're struggling with figuring out point of view, like you can't tell which character's point of view you're in, and I know some people are going to go, "How can you not know whose character's point of view and you're in?" Some people do struggle with this. They really struggle with point of view. They struggle with staying in one character's head. They, you know, it's it's um, people pick different things they have an affinity for. But if you're struggling with some of the the basic stuff, like staying in tents, keeping your tents correct, or um, staying in point of view, um, some basic writing stuff, writing fundamentals, um, it may not be um, – you may not want to try to tackle a whole bunch of other craft issues at the same time. Like, um, I don't know. Uh, I, if you're struggling with falling action and some of the other stuff, I would say conquer um, – point of view before you conquer falling action but you know it may be easier for you to conquer falling action i guess i would just caution you not to try to take on too many things at once because then you are in a box where you're trying to constantly self-correct and it can be really hard to be creative when you're trying to self-correct constantly
1: I encountered that problem today. I was, I was fiddling around with something and I stumbled over a capitalization issue. And normally capitalization is the last thing I, um, I worry about. You know, you you know where this is going, right? (laughs) Okay. Um, lately, this is, this is a, this is a, this is um, a little story about how a beta can, can impact you. Um, and, um, you know, Lady Holder and Chris King um, have beta for me for years, and um, um, you have different relationships with different betas, and they, you know, they give you different things, and sometimes um, it's good, and sometimes it's bad, you know, it's just, just what it is, that's what the beta relationship is. Um, sometimes they they take you down a garden path, and you end up writing a book you didn't mean to write. I'm not looking at you, Chris. Um, and uh, so, it just, it, it, it happens, right? But Jilly has been um, helping me has been doing some beta work for me and this woman has a problem with random capitalization and she will call you out on it and just highlight all your shit all through your story right and so I was I do. writing today and I was like damn it damn it should I capitalize that like fuck jelly <laughs> <laughs> it literally stopped me in my tracks I was like fuck I don't know I had to go look it up just to see if I should capitalize this particular thing. Um, And, uh, yeah. And I don't know why I capitalize some things. I don't even know where that comes from. Like, why the hell am I capitalizing Atrium in in Harry Potter? I don't know. I don't know why I keep capitalizing it. Anyways...
2: But you know, this is one of those things that I, that if I have a problem like that where I just consistently do something wrong, I usually try. I have a little list of things that I will search a story for before I publish it to see if I've done this, this thing. Um, you know, and sometimes it's easier to just find that stuff afterward, or let let your your really neurotic um, friend who goes crazy when. Um, you capitalizing consistently <laughs> just go through and highlight all your shit. You know, that's sometimes that's the best way to do it and not get in the way of your writing. Um,
1: Chris is very fond of commas. Uh, that That is absolutely true. Chris is very fond of commas. Um, but yeah, I'm not a capitalization issue. So.
2: I, I am a, um, I'm really good with commas, but I am not an Oxford comma crazy. If an Oxford comma is left out, unless I think it changes the meaning of a sentence, I won't put it in.
0: So,
2: Here's um,
1: my thing about the Oxford comma. You need to be either all in or nothing. If you're going to use an Oxford comma somewhere, you need to use it everywhere. I, I, it's, just, it's, it's my thing. You need to be
2: consistent. I'm usually all about consistency. I, use, I don't use the Oxford comma in single word lists. I do use it in descriptive lists. So when 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 the items being separated by the comma are multiple words, I always use an Oxford comma. When it's just Joe, Bob, and Harry, when that's my consistency is when it's single word lists, I do not use the Oxford comma, ever. And I know it drives some of my betas crazy who are big on the Oxford comma, um, but you know. But I don't I even notice
1: it. it in my own work, and that's the crazy part of this, this this particular thing for me, is that I don't notice it in my own work. But if I see somebody who doesn't use the Oxford comma in their work, and then suddenly they do, I want to stab them. And it just it it makes no sense because I don't actually care in my own work. I can't. I have I have no explanation.
2: Yeah, I I I, I do I, I just, we, all, we, we all have, have, we have grammar pet peeves. Um, I um I left a grammar error. I, I was, like, deliberately leaving a grammar error in one of Kira's stories. And I had, so I was like, I'm going to leave that because it appealed to my sensibility to leave the error. Um, but then I felt like I had to explain her.
1: Correct yeah, she put a note it. in there. She put a note, yeah, there was a note. And I actually agree with your note. It's pretty funny.
0: <laughs>
1: and now <laughs> when I publish that story, the airport's like, well, where's the grammar note? We're going to have to find the note. We're going to have to find out what it is. Good luck, people. <laughs> It's really obscure, and that's the point of the, the terrible, terrible inside joke we just shared with you. Sorry, <laughs> it's awful. But um, yeah, yeah, capitalization issues—it's it, it, a thing. It is definitely a thing.
2: I um, I correct all her comma splices, too, but I don't. You know, it's not like it would offend me mortally if she decided she didn't like that change, you know. So that's one of those things that I just you know, somebody has to tell me in advance. Like I've i I've had I've re, I've dated for people who do like a style guide. Like they tell me I write in sentence fragments, don't correct my sentence fragments or I write in long run on sentences, don't correct them. <laughs> I'm like, well okay I'll put in commas but you so you don't want me to tell you this sentence is so long it hurts my brain. No, okay fine. And I had worked with one person who said, you know, I love comma splices. Don't correct them. I'm like all right, that's your jam. I'll do it. I'll leave them alone. And I would correct it. i go, that was a comma splice, and I'd back out my correction and keep going.
0: <laughs> it
1: depends. Sometimes I want to keep a comma splice, and sometimes I don't. Um, I do tend to write very complicated uh, compound sentences, and so sometimes um, my brain will turn... What should it I'll insert a comma and create a comma splice by accident because I'm in that compound sentence mode. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um But I fucking love a semicolon.
2: Semicolons are lovely. They really are. Because that's one of the easiest ways to solve a comma splice is you just put in a semicolon. There you go. Done. Boom. They're having preposition issues in the the chat room. On
1: and by accident. That actually, that little section of um, the other Evans girl where Harry says on accident and Iris corrects him and says by accident, um, that's because when I was little, I would say on accident and my mom would repeatedly, repeatedly correct me. And... um, it just, it, it fell into that story, and I didn't even realize I'd done it until I had, um, I meant to do the on accident part, because he's five, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't for Iris to correct him, that wasn't what I intended, and then when I was reading back through it, I was like, oh shit, my mom, in- <laughs> my mom invaded my pick.
2: <laughs> I just channeled my mother, how uncomfortable. <laughs>
1: It's all up in my story, but yeah. So sometimes that happens. You you know you have a quirk, a, a language quirk that ends up or a little you know thing that happens in your family that ends up in your story, and that's what that was. Um, I meant for Harry to say on accident because he's five, um, but uh, the uh, the correction was not on purpose. I just I, I wrote it and I really wasn't paying attention because sometimes when you're writing, you're just in a zone and you write it all out and then you read back and you're like what. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's not like what I did oh, okay. I did what? What happened?
1: <laughs> yeah, Chris, your mom still not correct your English, but she saved you from a giant spider. By the way, Chris had an incident with a giant spider and her mom saved her with a rubber mallet. For those of you who don't know, Chris lives in Australia.
2: Where um, when she says giant mm-hmm. spider.
1: She they they make giant spider. I read that to my husband, and he was howling. He was howling with laughter. He said, wait, her mom needed a mallet to kill the spider? I was like, apparently. <laughs> and he was like, we can never go to Australia. <laughs> some,
2: some <laughs> freaky stuff. I encountered some big-ass spiders when I was living in Texas, and I know they get bigger than in Australia, and I couldn't deal. I could not deal. No. There are too many things in Australia that want to kill
1: me, and I mean me specifically. I just can't go there, Chris. I'm scared.
2: <laughs> yeah, I have been bitten by a brown recluse and a black widow, Um, and I was bitten by the brown recluse when I was in the South, and I was bitten by a black widow in California, and... My history with spiders is not good. It is not good. If I go to Australia, a funnel web spider is going to find me, and I'm going to die. And that's going to be it. The spiders will finally have won. I just can't I just can't let that happen. I have to stay home. No, I agree. It's
1: it's just not a good idea for you to go to Australia.
2: Not a good idea at all. Mm-mm-mm.
1: But one of the one of the things that I would say um about um the issue of of falling action um is that uh I cushion my fallen action with relationship. And that could be because I'm a romance writer. So often when um when you look at my work and you'll You'll notice a trend um, after the climax, I'll have some very personal intimate scenes with my characters um, to to slow the pace down uh, because that's just that's just a, that's just a natural falling action for a romance writer to bring your main pairing together and to make everything um, quiet. Mm. I think the quiet moments are most obvious, like maybe in ties that bind. Um, if you go back and you read some of those stories, um, they'll often end with Ron, with um, Did I say Ron? Oh my God! Um, with John and Rodney in small, intimate moments uh, that bring the reader down into a place where they're comfortable with the ending. But there's one thing I've never been accused of, except for that whole trial thing of A Ties That Bind is leaving the reader in a cliffhanger. Until I wrote The Broken Road, n- nobody was like, Oh my God, oh my God, what's going to happen in cliffhanger? Oh my God. <laughs> because I was ending them all in very, um, very intimate uh, ways. So that there was that connection between the characters and the reader was connected to the character. And everything was really smooth and quiet and peaceful and for me that's the best kind of small um um the action is when um there's that relationship that has a satisfying end and everything's going to be okay and you know but I tend to write relationships where um I'm a I'm a very much believer in the team theory it's us against the world and that's why I like to write that's my thing mm-hmm And so I think it probably shows up in most of my work. Um, So, but yeah, so that's my thing.
2: (coughs) But speaking of romance, you know, different, different genres can lend themselves to different kinds of falling action. I'm not talking about any kind of hard and fast rule, but for those of us, especially who read a lot of romances in the eighties and nineties, a lot, a lot of the formula was a very steep falling action. Um, The climax of the story was the characters getting together. I mean, like the, not always I'm, I'm, this, is, this is by no means any kind of saying this has happened, but a lot of the mass market paperback romances it was the majority of the, the rising action was getting them to the point where they would get together and finally have sex, and then you 'd have a steep drop that was the climax of the story in a very literal way and Then you have (laughs) in a very
1: literal way. Yeah. Yeah. They fight
2: that. That was it. They'd finally get laid. They'd get married and have sex or they wouldn't get married. Whatever they do, they finally get together. You know, the bodice ripper one, he, he wore her down and they finally had sex. It was a terrible formula, but there you go. But so sex was often the climax of the story. Um, and then the falling action often would be like a chapter. It was very abrupt. Um, but it was a formula everybody was very familiar with. Is that okay? They got together, and then you get a little bit of a glimpse of afterward, and then the story's done. So you'd have, you know, ninety percent rising action, or ninety percent rising action and climax, and then ten percent falling action. And you know, we're all very familiar with that kind of formula. Um, now there were some writers that definitely broke out of that mold. Um, and got the characters together a lot earlier in the story Um, but when you have that kind of romance formula where the the getting together is the typical climax you then put yourself into a position of having to have if you're getting your characters together in the first quarter of the book you have to have another plot, right? You have to have something else that the book is rising to um, if it's not the actual bringing of them together which spawned my most hated romance trope of all time which was the perpetual misunderstanding
1: oh that's almost as bad as a secret baby although I did do a secret baby I did a secret baby in what might have been and um but it wasn't the usual secret baby, because usually the secret baby trope is that the heroine falls in love with the hero and has his baby, but she doesn't tell him because she's trying to, know. you know,
0: do for herself. Yeah.
1: And then the hero comes back, and he falls in love with her again, despite the fact that she's kept his 16-year-old kid from him his whole life. You know, <laughs> you're like, what? Really? No.
2: Come on now. Right. <laughs> so when people try to break away from formulas... get your child they... support. Right. And sometimes <laughs> they they spawn a formula that is to me like worse than the original. And the one that I hate is people trying to break away from that, you know, the point of every romance was the characters getting together and then you'd have a little bit of falling action and then the story be done. Is they brought got their they're, they're like breaking the formula, they're going to get the characters together in the first two chapters or something. And then the way, the plot device they used for now for the rising action was they have a misunderstanding. And it takes them apart. And mind you, usually it's a misunderstanding that could be solved by two adults acting like adults for five fucking seconds. But it persists through the whole story. And they, they kind of start to sort it out, but then it gets worse. And they're like the misunderstanding continues to escalate. And there's all these wounded and hurt feelings. And it, you, know, you have this escalating misunderstanding for 40,000 words. And then the climax is them actually finally speaking to one another and all the hurt feelings go away and there's, again, another literal climax and then you have falling action. And that became, it is my most hated trope um, of all time, is the, the extended misunderstanding. I I, joined, I absolutely loathe it. But there are other ways that you can, in a romance, where you can bring the characters together early, but, you know, that's usually, there's you're crafting some other... Um, major... usually it's
1: a romantic suspense yeah um which is one of my preferred um my methods of uh um- reading a romance these days that that whole extended misunderstanding thing is a really big trope in Star Trek right now, and I hate it mm.
2: it's terrible It just i, I know some people really dig it, but there's just it's one of those things that i cause i just it, the reason why I don't like it is because I can't suspend my disbelief around it. Because 99% of the time, if people would act like a grown-up and actually use words, the misunderstanding would resolve. Um, either that, or one, it, either that, or the misunderstanding persists because one of the um, characters is so emotionally tragic that their insecurities drive the misunderstanding, and I find that like nails on a chalkboard. So I can't deal with an insecurity for 100,000 words. No. (laughs) You better get get over that shit in 5,000 words or I'm done. (laughs) I'm sorry, you better box up your neuroses in 5,000 words or less. (laughs) I'm
0: just
1: kidding. (laughs) You need need to suck it up, buttercuff. This is is not how this story is going to go. But, you know, I mean... I'm a very picky reader. Um, but uh earlier when you were talking about um the kind of stories you like to read in um in uh Harry Potter, I wanted to ask you and then I forgot and didn't ask. Have you read Turn by Sarah I have
2: I have not read Turn.
0: I've heard oh, of that several times.
2: It's like on my read list but I've never quite gotten around to it.
0: Oh
2: I would say that um
1: Turn is responsible for there came a point when I was writing Harry Potter as a character, the actual character of Harry Potter, not the fandom itself, when um like he's very much a young he's a boy in Birth of the Serpent King. You know, he's he's trying to seek out his manhood, but he's definitely a boy. Um, but when I transitioned Harry into a grown man in say blank space or courting Hermione Granger um, I think I got there because of Sarah's girl Hmm. Uh, there is something about turn that allowed me to transition Harry from this teenage boy to a grown man um, in a way that was very tangible, and um our work is very different. Um um, Sarah's girl has a very different um uh, voice and craft from me, so it isn't about that. It's about her exploration of Harry as a character and um his dis- his dissatisfaction with life and his movement through all of these things that, that happened to him and um what he learns about himself. Uh and so I I really credit Sarah's girl with um waking me up to Harry as a man and not as a teenage boy. Does that make so? Yeah,
0: yeah I I, yeah. I
1: recommend any story in the Harry Potter fandom you you must read Turn.
2: Uh it is outstanding character work. I, I just I just looked at the length, it's over three hundred thousand words. Um so this will be hot on my um read list in December. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm not I'm 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 like really curious now that I'm not picking up an H P epic <laughs> right before nano. Um but yeah, I'm definitely interested in reading that because I think one of the reasons why I um, definitely one of the why I latched on so much to *Birth of the Serpent King* when I read it is because I hadn't been reading characterizations of Harry that inspired me in um, in a meaningful way. Um, the ones where he wasn't um, and, and this a lot of this could have just been I'm not dissing the HP fan. I mean, there's there's literally more than a million Harry Potter stories, probably more than two million if you were to like put all the flights together. Um, so there's a lot of fan works out there for Harry Potter, and I had by no means read even a teeny tiny percentage of them. But the stories I had read, um, and this is a lot to do with the, the preferences of the people recommending, recommending stuff to me, um, is Harry was very much a victim in those stories and um, kind of pathetic. And it was, I can't
1: just write, wasn't, I can't do that. I can't
2: write it that. Just wasn't, I, it wasn't working for me. I didn't like it. I couldn't relate to him. I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to kind of throttle him and say, um, you know, m- you know, buck up and do something about your situation. And when he wasn't, when he was, you know, when I'd see the badass Harry tag, he was an asshole.
1: A complete asshole.
2: And I was like, so my options are victim or asshole? I don't want to read this. Um and then I read *Birth of the Serpent King*, and so I decided I was gonna, you know, keep. I was gonna keep trying to read some Harry Potter. And I, I would say, even though I I like the fandom, that for most, compared to most Harry Potter readers, I have read just I I would say completed a very tiny. Because Harry Potter is one of the fandoms I will nope out of a story faster than any other fandom I read because there are so many um, things that can just push my buttons um, in in that fandom with the way that, you know, he's written or um, a lot of the pervasive underage stuff that goes on and so on and so on and so on. So on. Um, and then also just, you know, um, the escalation of his abuse is, and this is not a criticism of the writers that escalate the abuse he endured as a child. I mean, to like... Um, A ridiculous degree It's just it pushes my buttons And so I can't read it Um, So um, So I haven't read as much As a lot of Harry Potter fans have In in the H.P. fandom Because um, I've noped out of Probably 50 times as many fixes As I've finished If I could wreck
1: um, Three stories in Harry Potter um, It would be um, Turn By Sarah's girl Um, Harry Potter and the Manipulator of Destiny. (laughs) It's so awesome. That's a Harry Hermione story. Um, And Luna and Neville. I
2: never finished it.
1: Oh. And, um... What's that one where Blaze is Malcolm Tucker? Oh, I fucking love that one. Uh... It's also, it's got Harry, he's he's mature, but he's fucked up. And it, it's just great. I mean, it's just like,
2: Harry, you asshole. <laughs> I I have read, there's one I've read that um, was a little outside of the norm for me, but I really enjoyed it. Um, it was, and I can't remember the name, but it's Harry kind of just decides, you know, he's going to go on vacation. I think... He decides he's going to do it because he's convinced he's going to die and he might as well have a good summer or something that, like that.
1: That's Make-A-Wish by Zara Azkaban.
2: Oh, is it?
1: Yes. I actually no, I really Rorschach enjoy a Make-A-Wish. I really enjoy Make-A-Wish. Um, it's fantastically crackish. And I never get to see that scene where the, the rocks actually fall without howling with laughter.
2: It's hysterical. I mean, he just leaves this trail of bodies in his wake and it's just, Oh, it's 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 wonderful. It's just it's but it's it's so not, um, um. It's like anything I would normally read. Cause I usually, if somebody tells me something is crackish, that's usually my first indicator that it's probably not something I'm going to want to read. But every once in a while, there's a story that's like that, and I just go, my God, this is just gold. I gotta I gotta keep going. Um.
1: The one where um Blaze is um Malcolm Tugger is called We Are Young and I'm not going to be able to say that writer's name but I'm going to put a link here in the chat room. Um and um it's fantastic. it, it is fantastic. Um they're they're deeply flawed that that they that they fuck up a lot. Their friends are like, "Oh my god." <laughs> Would you two stop getting together or stay together. Oh my god. It's really funny. But if um I could rec- if you if you only ever read one Harry Potter story in your life that's in fandom, read Turn by Sarah's girl. Skip my shit, read hers. <laughs> 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 I really mean that. I, I, I really mean that. Um it is um by far uh the most um moving um character portrayal of Harry as an adult that you can read in the fandom <laughs> I'm just saying you need to read Sarah's girl. If you're not gonna read anything else, you need to read that. And I do have a lot of people who are on my site who are not Harry Potter um fans. Um but um outstanding work. It's really, really outstanding.
2: No, she didn't commit blasphemy. You guys are nutters. <laughs> Well, I will definitely go then at the top of my read list. Um although it's actually I mean I don't I read well I, I read during during Rough Trade. I just um I try not to get read stuff that is so riveting I can't put it down because
1: then I don't get any I, done. I mainline turn. because um, I was looking at the long along right, turn right after it was finished and I read the whole thing. Without getting up, I might have went to pee. I, maybe <laughs> I might
0: have
1: went to pee. I mean, other than that, I, I was my butt was in this chair and I was reading that shit to the very end. And I was like, <sighs> it broke my heart, and it was, it was just, it's really good. Um, but it really, uh, it it brought an adult slant to Harry Potter for me that I'd, um, even though I'd written some stuff myself and I'd been reading a lot in the fandom, um, turns a very, uh, and it's not about content, it's about um, perspective and uh, it's just a, it's a a very adult story. I like grown-up stories. (laughs) Grown-up story. Um, so in that respect, we can also probably bring Sarah for my current project um, with James Potter.
2: <laughs> now I'll, I I'll reserve need, judgment. I need I'll, reserve, I'll reserve judgment about... Um, like, if you're going to only read one Harry Potter story, this is the one you should read. until so after I read the one by Sarah's Girl. But if I were doing it right now, I would say, do the horrible thing and say it should be the story that isn't even available.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: a real asshole thing to say. Um. It is. It's awful.
0: <clears throat>
1: and, it, you know, this isn't about um, either one of us being a tease or anything. It's about... Um, uh, well, that wasn't the point. The point isn't to, to, I'm to tease you with shit you can't read yet. Um, it's just not ready. It's just not ready for public consumption yet. So, but what when it is, and, and when I um, feel like I can handle 300 comments asking for more um, from the Harry Potter fandom, I'll put it
2: up. Sometimes, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak to your motivation there, but sometimes a story is done but not done because um, when I know there's going to be another book, if I don't have that second book really gelled in my head, um, it's like I don't want to commit to the finishing publishing the first book because I might need to change something to set up a plot point or something or um, bring a character in that's really important to the second book. Um, You know, so I just... And, I mean, that's one of the reasons why DeNovo is still sitting on EAD, even though technically it's done, is because I'm still trying to work out some problems with the plot for the second book. And until that's done, um, I'm just not going to effectively finalize it, even though it's, it, that one actually is out there. So, um, you know, because just, that's just the way I, I
1: work. Um, well, this book, which I'm calling The, the Legacy, by the way, the legacy. Um
0: it I
2: oh, thought that was the series name.
1: No, that's something oh. else. And if I said it it would be kind of a spoiler. It would indeed. Um anyways, uh one of the reasons that um I'm I kinda stumbled um on putting the book out there is because my natural inclination was to take book 2 in one direction and when i tried to do that when i tried to start it that way it just it, it it it's not gelling and i've put down two or three different um openings for the for book 2 and none of them are really um working for me and then i had an epiphany about it and it's because my natural inclination was to move it into harry's point of view um for the second book, which makes absolutely no sense for the first book. Uh, so, I should do some real thinking about it, you know, and how I want to do it and how I want to structure it and um, the story that I want to tell. And I think the story I want to tell will take place in the years before Harry Potter um, ever even gets near um, Hogwarts. Um, Because in the first book, Harry is eight. Um, And uh, so I think that I I have issues. I have issues. (laughs) And when you have an issue like that, you don't want to, like Julie said, you don't want to commit to putting this out here and then... um, it not working out and then you've disappointed your readers or you've disappointed yourself in my case, which is more important. Um, what? It's true. I come first around here. Um, <laughs> and I have this specific story I want to tell about James Potter. Um, and the choices he made, um, and, um, his decision to put the safety of his wife and child above everything else. um, his legacy, his his title, his wealth, um, his pride. Um, And I realized when I was trying to write book two that I'm not quite finished. This is Jane's story, not Harry's. And that's really difficult to to wrap your head around when you're used to writing Harry Potter. Harry Potter.
2: (laughs) So... Yeah, it's um, sometimes you have these these moments where you go, this needs to be a different way than I would normally do, and it it kind of throws you off your game. And I I have ignored those impulses at my peril, because um, there have been times when I have had an, an inclination or an instinct to do something a certain way, and it didn't. For some reason, it didn't make sense to me, or it's not what I usually do, and then I plowed on, continued on, with the way I thought it should be, and you know, inevitably, I'm not happy. I've stalled out. Something's wrong. I can't continue, and then I'm sitting there looking at, you know, thirty thousand words or forty thousand words that I'm really unhappy with, but I can. You know, sometimes I'll dig in my heels about it, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to make this happen the way it is and then be really miserable with it for a long time and then shelve it and then like a year later I can let go of it finally and I go back to what my original impulse was. And it's just, sometimes you just got to do what you're, sometimes you get a gut feeling about something and you got to go with it. Like this is the way this needs to go. And when you ignore it,
1: You get a dissatisfying experience.
2: And a very frustrating experience because muscling through, um, because you can. You can can force your way through something um, and make yourself put something out. Um, But it it doesn't feel good when you're done. It doesn't feel good to me um, to to force something that isn't working. I don't like it.
1: Chris said in the chat room that I'm in here like something with no sex in it. Um I you know, I I was actually expecting a lot of grief about um I'm, I'm courting Hermione Granger, um because there is no sex and I thought that there would be, you know, people who would go, Oh God, you know, where's the sex? Um but there hasn't been and so that's kind of a surprise that people haven't complained about that to the degree that I expected them to. There were a couple, was one or two, um, who would have liked a sex scene. Um, but honestly, I'm going to tell you right now, you would not have liked the sex scene that I wrote. I don't know what happened. Because I think we can all agree that if I have one really
0: specific,
1: obvious skill, it is my ability to write sex. You write good sex. Yeah. Dialogue and sex, that those are things that I can do in my sleep. I don't even gotta think about it. Dialogue just comes right out. Smooth as silk. I don't even know where it comes from. Sex, same thing. I that was the worst sex scene I've ever written in my life and I am including the ones I wrote when I was twelve. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. When I use the words like blossom. <laughs> no. And the evidence of his desire. Oh, it it was. I was just like, what, what is? Oh my God! It was awkward and terrible. And I'm like, I just can't. And, that, and then I realized what it was is that I, um, that I uh, had written this in a very particular way, and I uh, was kind of. Um, I was deeply uncomfortable uh, writing this particular scene, and that discomfort was translating into the actual words. i was I was uncomfortable, so my characters were uncomfortable um, because I had written Hermione in such a way that um I literally felt like I was invading her privacy. That's a really weird experience to be when you're the writer and that's the character. You don't
0: your
1: you, you, your character has no privacy. <laughs> you know all their stuff, but I I really felt like I was invading her privacy. Um, it's just really funny because I've written Hermione in some really explicit sex scenes before, but not that particular version of her. <laughs>
2: And it's funny because sometimes when you're writing, you, your own expectations can intrude on your process. Um, your your notion of other people's expectations can intrude on your process. And um, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, like a red-letter day when you can just put all that stuff aside and just stay true to your craft and stay true to your story and set your own your own internal voice aside, you know, the voice of expectation. I don't mean your your Yeah. Your your I don't inspiration think... or anything. Or and other people's expectations aside and just put it aside and go, I'm just gonna do it I'm gonna do what I feel is the right thing to do. This is my vision and this is what's gonna happen and I don't care about anything else. And getting to that point, um, it feels really good and it's kind of it's kind of a revelation.
1: Okay. We got thirty one seconds. <laughs> I just looked at the clock. <laughs> okay. Um We might have another radio show tomorrow night. Um, It'll depend on how I feel. I'm on new medication. It's kind of making me crazy and super tired. And You might have noticed in the last couple of seconds here that I'm slurring my words. That's because I'm super tired. Anyways, you guys have a great evening.